Well, welcome. Um, we are starting a new study today. Uh, we finished our work on 2 Timothy last week, and we're going to begin a study of another of Paul's epistles today. We're going to take a look at the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, someone might ask, well, how does the rector go about choosing these classes that he's deciding to teach? Well, I'll tell you how I chose this one. First of all, I needed a relatively short letter to get me through the spring semester. Now, of course, Second Timothy was relatively short, and you saw how long it took us to get through that. So, but relatively short epistle to get us through this next semester so that we're not left over the summer hanging and having to come back to it, uh, presumably in the fall. So that was one reason. Second reason is Ephesians just happens to be one of my favorite books from the entire Bible. So I'm teaching. I get to choose what I wanted to teach. So that, that's, that's another reason for doing it. But let me give you a third reason why I think it's important to study this particular epistle at this particular point in the life of this congregation, but also in the life of the church at large. And I'll share a story uh, with you. It was relayed to me by the man who witnessed it, um, Bishop Alden Hathaway, who is the retired Bishop of Pittsburgh. He's preached here on a couple of occasions, primarily, I think, when Jim Hampson was the rector here. Uh, they were good friends, and so Bishop Hathaway would sometimes come down. But as you know, I came from Pittsburgh, and he was my bishop. He actually confirmed me, ordained me a deacon, ordained me a priest, preached my institution when I was the rector at St. Helena's, and then came and worked for me in his retirement years. So that was you know, my life's ambition, to boss around a bishop, which I had the opportunity to do. So the circle was complete. But he tells this story, and I've never forgotten it. And I think it's, it's very applicable to where we are. Uh, at the dawn of the 21st century. Uh, in Pittsburgh, about once a year, normally around Pentecost, all of the Christian leaders would get together, the leaders of the Christian denominations. So the Roman Catholic bishop and the Episcopal bishop and the Methodist bishop and the Lutheran bishop and the Presbyterian moderator and all of these groups, they would get together and they would have one great ecumenical service. And it was normally around Pentecost, an appropriate time, the birthday of the church, and it was normally held either at Trinity Cathedral, which was downtown, the Episcopal Cathedral, or it was held at the great Roman Catholic Cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral, which was located up on Fifth Avenue in Pittsburgh. For those of you who've ever been to Pittsburgh, you're familiar with it. That's where this took place. And uh, he said it was always a wonderful service. Um, now, if you know Fifth Avenue, Fifth Avenue runs right through the university section of Pittsburgh. So you have to cross, you have to pass Duquesne University on your way up there, and then you go right smack through the middle of the campus of the University of Pittsburgh, and right on down to the campus of Carnegie Mellon, which is right across from St. Paul's Cathedral, the Roman Catholic Cathedral. And they'd have this big service in there. And he said, oh, it was always a marvelous thing. He said, all the bishops, you know, that wore mitres had their mitres on, and there was a beautiful vested choir, and he said, it was just marvelous. One of us would have the opportunity to preach and so forth. And he said, at the end of the service, we were all processing out. And he said, the cross is leading us out, and we're all there in all of our finery, all of our vestments, and there's a cloud of incense, and they throw open the great bronze west doors of the cathedral. And down we come the stairs, and he said, as we came down the stairs, we looked across Fifth Avenue, and we could see Carnegie Mellon's Center for Software Technology. And he said, and there were all these young co-eds, the brightest of the brightest, 
And they're sitting there in their t-shirts and their ripped jeans and they've got their diet cokes and their sack lunches. And we're there in our cloud of incense and all of our vestments and we're looking at them and they're looking at us. And he said, the question is, how do you get the gospel across Fifth Avenue? How do you get this ancient gospel, which is the wisdom, the word of God, across Fifth Avenue to a 21st century postmodern contemporary culture? How do you do it? Well, that's one way, yes. Well, that's what we're going to study. That's the point of studying the Epistle to the Ephesians, you see. Because I think there are few books in the Bible that can better equip us to do this than this little epistle. A little epistle that John Stott calls a marvelously concise epistle. And one that has had a profound impact on the lives of a great many people. Here's what John Stott says in the introduction to his commentary on Ephesians. He said it was John Calvin, the great... Um, reformer. He said it was John Calvin's favorite letter. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. William Barclay, the Scottish scholar, quotes Samuel Taylor Coleridge's assessment of it as the divinest composition of man and adds his own dictum that it is the queen of the epistles. John Mackay, who was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, went so far as to say, to this book I owe my very life. He went on to explain how in July of 1903, as a lad of 14, he experienced, through reading Ephesians, a boyish rapture in the highland hills of Scotland and made, quote, a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. Here is his own account of what happened to him. He said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything to me. I had been quickened. I was really alive. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? And all the result of reading this little concise epistle. And it is concise. It's only six chapters. Now, when you put that over and against Paul's epistle to the Romans or 1 Corinthians, it's almost, those other epistles are almost three times as long as the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, don't get me wrong, Romans is a remarkable book. It's had a profound impact on the life of a great many Christians. Martin Luther, as you all know, came to a true and lively faith as a result of reading Romans. John Wesley came to a true and lively faith as the result of reading Martin Luther's preface on the epistle to the Romans. So Romans is a remarkable book. Many people have said that it's the constitution of Christianity, and that is perhaps true. But this little book, this little book, nevertheless, even though it is very concise, it is extremely comprehensive. In these six chapters, the Apostle Paul deals with so many different Christian doctrines. One person has counted up 27 major Christian doctrines in just the six chapters of this book. And we're not talking about little, insignificant teachings. We're talking about major doctrines. In these six chapters, Paul covers the following topics. And these are just a few, just a smattering. 
He deals with the subject of the Trinity, the idea that God is three in one and one in three. He deals with the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. Not 90%, 10%, or 60-40, or 50-50, but 100% human, 100% man, and he deals with not only his person, but his work. His atoning work upon the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension for our justification. He deals with the doctrine of creation, what God intended when he created the world. He deals with the subject of heaven, something that should all be of interest to us, since one day we all hope to go there. He deals with the subjects of angels and demons, the doctrine of the church, what it means to be, the body of Christ, the community of faith. He deals with the communion of saints. He deals with the sacraments. And he deals with Christian ministry. And all of that in six chapters. So why should we study the epistle to the Ephesians? Because, I'll tell you, if you claim to be a Christian today, and you've heard me say this ad nauseum, and you're going to hear me say it over and over again, if you're a Christian, you have not simply been saved from something. It is true if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from condemnation. Isn't that what Paul says elsewhere in Romans? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But while we have been saved from something, from sin and death, and the prospect of condemnation, we have also been saved for something. Paul makes that very clear in this epistle. We have been saved for good works. We have been saved, each and every one of us, to make a difference in the world. We have been saved for the purpose of taking the gospel across Fifth Avenue. Now the question is, how do you do that? Well, I think it's quite clear if the Apostle Paul, in just six chapters, covers all of these topics, then if we can understand this book and what it teaches, we'll find ourselves equipped, given everything that is necessary in order to be effective in this calling as Christian people, as the church. Not the church which is complacent, but the church militant, the church that is out there making a difference in the world and in the culture. And so that's why today we are going to start a study of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. It is one of my favorites. It is brief, but it is also marvelously comprehensive. And if you can learn this book, you may have read through Romans, you may have found it very difficult. You may have read through 1 Corinthians and found it very discouraging and depressing. But if you can read through this little book and understand the principles as they are taught and applied in this little book, you will be able to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ in the world today. So let's begin with a study of the epistle to the Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, open them up, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Um, uh, I'm going to start being like our, our Al Phillips who teaches the children's confirmation class. Every time they bring a Bible, he gives them a dollar. Um, actually, a $2 bill is what they get. So you never know. Um, maybe I can drum up support. If you bring your Bibles, you'll get some sort of... I'm not going to give you any money, but I might give you stars in your crown for the future. So I can't get you into heaven, but on the other hand, this won't hurt. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, 
just the first two verses today, just the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you begin to study the epistle to the Ephesians and you begin to study it in depth, one thing becomes apparent almost immediately. There is a bit of a mystery associated with this particular letter. And the mystery has to do with the recipients. Who were the recipients? There's no doubt whatsoever in the mind of most apostles or most scholars that this was a letter by the Apostle Paul. Now, for example, uh, for a long time in the history of the church, it was assumed that the epistle to the Hebrews was written by Paul. And if you go back and you read old King James versions of the Bible, sometimes they even say, St. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Most scholars do not hold that Paul wrote Hebrews today. We still believe that it is the word of the Lord, but the style of the writing is, is very different from Paul. It's Pauline theology, but the style of the writing is almost entirely different from Paul's. That is not the case here. There's, there's no doubt in the minds of most scholars that the epistle to the Ephesians was indeed written by Paul. The only question is, was it really written to the Ephesians? We call it that, but was it really written to the Ephesians? Three of the oldest manuscripts that we have, in particular the Chester Beatty Papyrus, three of the oldest manuscripts that we have lack the words in Ephesus in the introduction. And to compound matters, the second century heretic, Marcion, actually referred in one of his writings, now second century, we're talking about very early on, actually refers to this epistle as not the epistle to the Ephesians, but the epistle to the Laodiceans. So that raises a question, who was this letter really written to? Now, many of the other early manuscripts do say to the Ephesians, but we do know that at least some of the earliest manuscripts and some of the earliest sources do not have those words in Ephesus written in. So who was this letter written to? Well, the general consensus today is that this letter was probably what we would call a circular letter. It was a letter that was written to multiple churches. And Paul sent it out to multiple churches, the churches that he had established, churches that he had founded and which he had a relationship with, but he sent out this message to multiple churches, and then when they received their copy, they simply filled in their name. And so presumably there was a copy of this letter that went to the church in Laodicea. But there was also a copy that went to the church in Ephesus. And the one that's been handed down to us today is the one that was written to the church in Ephesus. So there's a little bit of a mystery as to who this letter was actually addressed to, but for the most part we have no doubt that it was written by the Apostle Paul. Probably a Catholic, as I said, or circular letter. What we do know is that many of the early church fathers, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, etc., they all referred to this as the letter to the Ephesians. So the question again is not about authorship, but it is about the recipients. Nevertheless, we know that one copy did go to the Ephesians. Whether this is the actual version, uh, we're not exactly sure, but we know that one copy did go to the Ephesians. So if that's the case, what was this church in Ephesus like? Uh, Paul may have written this to the Laodiceans, but one copy did go to the Ephesians. 
And we should understand what that church in Ephesus was like. What was it? Well, Ephesus was, for those of you in the Bible study on Acts, you know a little bit about this. Ephesus was a very important city. If you've ever been to Turkey and you've been to Ephesus today, it's an impressive sight even now. Uh, that's the ancient library. You can walk down the Cardo. It's the most well-preserved city of antiquity. If you're looking for one of those Raiders of the Lost Ark moments where you can walk into an ancient city, this is the city you want to go and visit. You want to go and visit Ephesus. It is a well-preserved city. It's impressive today. Just try and imagine what it would have been like in the first century. And for those of you who've been in the Acts study, you know that Paul had a missionary strategy when he went out to proclaim the gospel in the ancient world. Paul wanted to focus his attention primarily on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. In fact, you'll notice that on the second and third missionary journeys, he focuses almost exclusively on the major metropolitan areas. Now, that's not to say that Paul had no concern for small little villages. I used to tell people when I was down there in Beaufort that if Paul was preaching today, he probably would not have come to Beaufort, which really offended the Beaufortonians. I mean, they, they, they couldn't believe that Paul wouldn't visit Beaufort. My goodness. But I said, Paul probably wouldn't visit Beaufort. It's a small place. Now, I'm really stepping on toes here. I'm not sure he would have visited Charleston necessarily. <laughs> Paul probably would have focused attention where? On New York and Chicago and London and Paris, these major metropolitan areas. Why did he do that? Well, because Paul knew that the time was short. He only had so much time. He had been given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you want to do that as quickly and as effectively as possible. And the best way to do that? Center on the places where people were. And the cities were not only a place of concentration of population, but they were also a place where all of the commerce came and went. It's where fashion came and went. It's where the news came and went. And so if you could establish a Christian presence in those major metropolitan areas, then it wouldn't be long before what? The gospel, like everything else, was coming and going. And so you find that Paul really focused on the great metropolitan areas. He wrote an epistle to what? The church in Rome. That was the imperial capital. He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was one of the most important cities of the ancient world. It was located on a narrow isthmus between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south, right between the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. Everything that came and went, east, west, north, south, had to go through Corinth. So, of course, Paul established a Christian presence there so that the gospel, like everything else, would be coming and going as those ships went and as people traveled. And that's the reason why he established a church here in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in the ancient world. First of all, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So it was the most important city in the Roman province or proconsul of Asia. It was a major commercial port. It was located at the mouth of the Caister River. Now, if you go there today, you will notice that you are at least six miles from the nearest significant body of water. But that was not the case in Paul's day. What happened was that the river changed its course, and it cut off Ephesus, and the whole area silted up so that now you're about six miles from the coast. But not in Paul's day. They were right there at the mouth of the river. 
And this was a great melting pot. This is where all of the east-west trade through the province of Asia went. If you were taking anything through that entire province, not modern Asia today, but what we would call what was called Asia in the ancient world, through portions of, of Turkey and so forth today. In order to go east or west, all trade had to go through Ephesus, up the river or through the roads through that area. So it was a great commercial center. This made it a great melting pot as well. All kinds of people were there. It was by no means monolithic. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were people of high estate and low estate. There were Greeks. There were Romans. All kinds of people met there. It was a melting pot. And because it was a melting pot, and because it was a great commercial port, because it was a political capital, it was also very cosmopolitan. Now, if you think about it, that's describing a city very similar to the ones that we are familiar with today, aren't we? Ephesus sounds a lot like New York, or Chicago, or London, or Paris. It was very cosmopolitan. It had one of the largest, in fact, it had the largest open-air theater in the Greco-Roman world. An open-air theater that sat 25,000 people. Now, you have to understand, that's 2,000 years ago. One of the great privileges of my life is I had the opportunity to preach in that open-air theater. It's still there. So people wondering, well, where are you going to take us on the next trip? My next trip, I'd like to take us on. We've been to the Holy Land. I'd like to go in the journeys of St. Paul. And one of the places we would visit is Ephesus. Remarkable city. But this great open-air theater. But just like places today, it was spiritual. And I say spiritual, not so much religious, but spiritual. You know, that's how people describe themselves today, isn't it? You, you'll hear people say, you know, I'm not particularly religious. You ever hear people say that? But I am spiritual. Now, just what the heck does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. You know what? They're not sure either. <laughs> but it's a sort of pick-as-you-choose kind of religious environment. And that's what this was like. It was a very superstitious and very, quote, spiritual place. The most impressive structure in Ephesus was this magnificent temple. And when I say magnificent, how many of you have ever been to Athens, Greece? All right, so you've seen the Parthenon. This temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called her, the goddess of the hunt, was four times the size of the Parthenon. Four times the size of the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis. It was one of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was believed that a stone, a, an image of the goddess Diana, had actually fallen from heaven. And this is what they worshipped. And when I say they worshipped it, if you know anything about ancient mythology, you know that Diana, or Artemis, was the goddess of the hunt. Except in Ephesus, where she was also known as a goddess of fertility. And so thousands of cultic prostitutes because that's how you worshipped in the ancient days. There were priestesses that served the goddess. Thousands of cultic prostitutes plied their trade in that temple in the first century when Paul arrived there. And all these images that you have of Artemis as, and Diana as sort of the goddess of the hunt, as I said, with her bow and arrow, 
that was not the Ephesian version of it. The Ephesian version of it was very grotesque. The female version of the goddess with multi-breasts. These are actual images that were uncovered in Ephesus. This was huge business in the ancient world. So you have a culture that is obsessed with sex. Sound familiar? It's a commercial center, center of fashion where everything comes and goes. It's cosmopolitan, a great mixture of all kinds of people. It's a political capital, so everybody's talking about the latest ideas of everything that's going on in the government. I don't know about you. Sounds a lot to me like New York, Chicago, London, Paris, or dare I say Washington, D.C. today. But here's the remarkable thing about this city of Ephesus. We're told in the book of Acts that it was, in spite of all of these things that you would think would have been a tremendous barrier to the proclamation of the gospel, this was actually a very receptive environment. Paul spent two years in Ephesus. That's longer than he spent any other time anywhere else. Two years in Ephesus, preaching the gospel in season and out of season. In fact, we're told he did it daily. And in those days, there were no five-day weeks. If, if you did it daily, you did it daily. Paul preached daily. Sometimes he preached in an open-air setting. Sometimes we're told he went into the lecture hall of Tyrannus. But the reality was, wherever he had the opportunity, he preached the gospel in season and out of season. And as I said, it began to make a difference. The story is told in Acts chapter 19. We don't have time to read through it today. Those of you who've been in the Acts study, you already know the story. This business of idolatry and the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians was what this city was known for. It's where many people went. They made great pilgrimages here. And this whole business was, well, it was business. It was big business. Uh, there was a whole guild of silversmiths who would make these little images of the goddess, images like the one that you see on the screen. And people would buy those when they came to Ephesus, and they would take them home as a little memento. Now, some of you may recall those days when your, your mothers and your grandmothers went to visit a place like Niagara Falls, and they'd buy a little silver spoon. You remember those little silver spoons, commemorative spoons that they would then take home with them? Well, that's what they did in Ephesus, except you brought home an image of her. And you would use that as you worshipped at home. You could worship Artemis of the Ephesians. And this was big business. Except that as the gospel began to make inroads into the lives of people, as people were converted, they began to abandon all of that superstitious nonsense. All of a sudden, people stopped buying these silver images of Artemis. And it began to affect the economy. Now, let me tell you, when things begin to affect the economy, you've got trouble. And they did have trouble in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the leader of the silversmiths became so irate about this, he brought a complaint against Paul and the Christians to the civic leaders. And the result was a huge riot. Now, this is not, doesn't look very riotous in this picture that's going to come up on the screen in just a minute. 
But if you look in the foreground, you can see all of the silver objects. What they did is they brought their silver objects, they brought their scrolls with all these magic incantations, and they began to destroy them publicly. I pointed out when we studied this in the book of Acts, if Christians are not making a difference, if our Christian faith is not making a difference on the economy of our country, I want you to know we don't have much of a Christianity. Because that's where people sit up and take notice, isn't it? When the economy is affected, my goodness, people sit up and they take notice. It doesn't matter what the President of the United States is saying, as long as the economy's good. I think about, I'm not going to deal with the present administration, I promise you. But I want you to think just for a minute about back during the Gulf War. The first Gulf War, when the first President Bush was in office. At the time of the Gulf War, he put together a remarkable coalition and a very successful military strategy. It was a very effective war. George H.W. Bush had the highest approval rating at that point of any president in the 20th century, surpassing Franklin Roosevelt, surpassing his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, the highest approval rating of any president in the 20th century. And what? Six months later or whatever, out of office. And why? the economy. The economy began to slide, and people were very much concerned about the economy. Well, they were concerned about the economy there, and they brought charges against Paul. They said, hey, look, these guys are advocating things that are so destructive to our economy that before long, the temple of Artemis, which the whole world worships, and I think that's hilarious, the whole world worshiped her. Well, obviously, some didn't. That was the problem. But they said the whole world worships her. But we're told that the great riot wrote, broke out there in Ephesus. And uh, some people were, thousands of people gathered in that great amphitheater that I mentioned. They were shouting all kinds of things. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're told in the book of Acts that some people didn't even know why they were there. They are just caught up in the pandemonium. But what's interesting is that on this particular occasion, Paul was tried and no charges were brought against him. He was not condemned. In other places, Paul oftentimes was beaten. In the case of Philippi, he was imprisoned. In other places, we're told, he was publicly flogged. But in this case, in the case of Ephesus, he was not. So even though this was a very cosmopolitan, complex, sex-oriented society, it was nevertheless one that was seeking. It was spiritual. And if it's spiritual, that meant that it was seeking, seeking something. I think our world, I think our people today are seeking something. The problem is, in my opinion, we have been vaccinated with a weak form of Christianity. And many people have grown resistant to the real thing. We have been preaching such a weak, pusillanimous Christianity to the people sitting in the pew for so long, and it has made such little difference in their lives that a whole new generation sees no value in it whatsoever. But it's not the real thing, folks. It's not the real thing. And so Ephesus was a remarkable place, and this letter was written to it. So that's a little bit of background. So let's just take a look at the introduction here. Very brief, just two verses. And I thought we'd get through everything today, not even a chance. 
Let's take a look at what Paul says in just these first two verses. First thing he says, and this is typical of introductions to ancient letters. You know, when we write letters today, the person who is the recipient's name comes first. And if you want to see who was the sender, you have to go what? Let's say it's a four-page letter. Nobody writes letters anymore, I guess. It's, it's emails today. And you automatically see at the top who the sender is. But in the old days, when you wrote letters, you had what? The person who was the recipient, and then you wanted to see who sent the letter. You had to go to the back page and look, see who signed it. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. It was more like our emails today. The recipients were mentioned at the front, but so was the sender. And the sender always established his credentials. In other words, if this was an official document, this person was saying why you needed to pay attention. Sort of like looking at the return address. When I get a letter and the return address says the Internal Revenue Service, I immediately sit up and take notice. Well, that's what Paul was doing here. He starts off this epistle by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What is he doing? He is establishing his credentials. He is establishing his credentials. What does it mean to be an apostle? What's an apostle? Two things you need to know about an apostle. First of all, they were a person who was a witness to the resurrection. Now, most of them were the 12 disciples, the 12 that Jesus chose, that inner circle. But we do know in the New Testament there were others. Paul was one of them. But you had to be a witness to the resurrection. Paul was a witness, you say, well, not to the resurrection, yes, but to the resurrected Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. The second thing was that you were a person specifically commissioned by God to receive his message and to impart that to the world. You were, in a sense, an official emissary or ambassador for God. So when Paul begins this letter and he says, I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is saying, number one, I am a witness to the resurrection. I have been called by God. I have been set apart with his authority. You're going to hear a sermon about authority today. It's a great sermon, and I can say that because I did not preach it. <laughs> Andrew's the preacher today, but it's a great message about authority. If you think about it, that's what we really struggle with in our day and age. I saw a bumper sticker some years ago that said, Question Authority. You ever see one of those bumper stickers? It used to be very popular around Charleston. Question authority. And I found that very interesting. It didn't say question bad authority. It didn't say question corrupt authority. It simply said, said question authority, as if to question all authority, as if we are an authority unto ourselves. Paul makes it very clear. He is an apostle, and he's been given authority. That's significant for you and for me. Because one of the things that we profess a faith in every single Sunday is one holy Catholic and what? Apostolic church. You know, sometimes you get into debates with people about certain items. And I think many people find Paul difficult. Uh, many people that I find in the world today struggle with the Apostle Paul more than anything else. They'll say, oh, I like Jesus, but Paul I'm not so sure about. And I think one of the reasons for that is, number one, Paul was a straight shooter. And number two, Paul was extremely thorough. And unlike Jesus, Paul was operating not in a Jewish context, but in a Greco-Roman culture, which is very similar to our own. And so Paul has some things to say to us that we don't necessarily like. Paul tweaks us a little bit. And so some people will say, well, I know that's what Paul said about this, that, or the other thing, but I want to know 
What did Jesus say? Of course, you pull Jesus out, he's the trump card because he trumps everybody. I want you to understand, when we stand up every Sunday and we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, what we are saying is that the faith that we hold as Christians is built, is established upon the foundation laid by the apostles. And that means when Paul speaks, Jesus is speaking. You understand that? That's why when we read from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in church, and that's how we introduce it, a reading from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. When we get to the end, we don't say, the word of Paul. We say what? The word of the Lord. It may be that Paul is the writer, but God is the author. And therefore, it is authoritative for your life and for mine. And you and I are expected to live under that. So that's what Paul is saying right here at the beginning of the letter. You need to listen to me. You need to listen to what I'm about to write here. Why? Because I'm an apostle. I've been commissioned by Christ Jesus. And that's the second thing that he says here. I'm an apostle, what? By the will of God. Paul doesn't say, well, I went off to school and I majored in apostleship. Or I didn't know what to do with my life, so I decided that I would become an apostle. He said, I am an apostle, how? By the will of God. Paul is making it very clear, Christ chose him. Why? Because Paul admits he would never have chosen Christ. Who would choose the life that the apostle Paul lived? A life in which he was often beaten and maligned and abused and ultimately put to death for his faith. Not only that, but if you know the story of Paul's early life, you know that he was by no means friendly to the Christian cause. He had actually set himself out to destroy the church, to systematically dismantle it. But on that road to Damascus, as he was going out there, the, the scripture says, breathing murderous threats against the followers of the way, God intervened. And God chose the Apostle Paul. And when he sent Ananias, after Paul had been struck blind, and he sent Ananias to go and lay his hands that Paul might receive his sight, Ananias said, I don't want to go. I think you got the wrong guy. I know about this Paul. He hates people like me. He's a man that's out here trying to destroy your church. I'm not going out to lay my hands. And the Lord said to him, you go. He is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So right here at the beginning of this epistle, before we even get into it, Paul is establishing his credentials. He's telling them, and he's telling us, we need to listen to what he is about to say. Why? Because he's an apostle. He speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. It is upon his witness that the church stands. And he didn't choose this job for himself. It was chosen for him. Now here's something else. That's who Paul is. Who are the people to whom he's writing? He says, to the saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. An apostle is writing to saints. When you think of a saint, what do you think of? Well, that's true. I, I think of Mary as well. She's still not going to remember you in her will, Gray, so you're out of luck. 
When you think of a saint, what do you generally think of? Most of us generally think of some heroic person who did great things and as a consequence of their greatness or their goodness went through some sort of elaborate process of apotheosis by which they have achieved the coveted status of saint for which they get their image in stained glass windows. Hey, that's what a saint is. If you think of a modern saint today, who's the first person that springs to mind? Mother Teresa, of course. And why is she a saint? Why do we say Mother Teresa is a saint? You all said Mother Teresa. Why? She was such a wonderful person. She did such great things. She was so compassionate and good to the poor. My goodness, of course she was a saint. Well, how about the rest of us? You think most of us, you see, when we think of saints today, we think of people who, as I said, have done heroic things, good things, great things for the cause of God, who lived so much better than the rest of us. In fact, and this is the way I think of saints, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good to the rest of us. That's what we think of when we imagine a saint, isn't it? Plaster images, two-dimensional figures in stained glass windows. But is that accurate? Actually, when the Bible speaks of the word saint, it has nothing in mind. The idea of a saint that we have today has been passed down to us in large measure because of an error within the Roman Catholic Church, in my opinion. The Roman Catholic Church has a whole process that you go through in order to become a saint. Did you know that? There's a trial. A person is actually nominated for sainthood. They're nominated for sainthood. And then they have an advocate. They go to trial. There's an actual trial. They go to trial, and there's an advocate on the one side who speaks of all the things, the greatness, all the reasons why this candidate should be made a saint. And one of the things they have to prove is that this candidate is responsible for at least one miracle. Then there is another person that stands up to speak, and that person argues against the credentials of the candidate. And that person is called the devil's advocate. That's where we get the term today. Did you know that? The devil's advocate. And so they argue against. Now, because the Roman Catholic Church is so efficient, as far as I know, nobody who ever gets that far in the process has ever been denied sainthood. But that's the whole process. And then they get voted on, and once they are voted upon, they go through a process of beatification, and eventually they achieve the coveted status of saint, and they get their name in the calendar. But that's far from the biblical notion of a saint. The notion of sainthood comes from the word sanctify. And it means to set aside or set apart for a holy purpose. For a holy purpose. You see this in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that Moses came and he took stones, put them together into an altar, and he sanctified them. That is, he made saints of them. Now, they were inanimate objects. So what does it mean? It means that common objects have now been set aside for a what? A holy purpose. Jesus, in John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, said that he sanctified himself. Well, Jesus was the perfect son of God. He didn't have to be made a saint. When he said, I sanctify myself for the disciples, what did he mean? I'm setting myself aside for a purpose, for their sake. Which means that the word saint and the word Christian are the same thing in the Bible. 
So when Gray turns around and says, when you think of a saint, who do you think of? I think of Mary Forbes. You are not far off the mark. She's a Christian, therefore she is a saint. And Gray, you are a Christian, therefore you are a saint. Saint Gray. Now, I can't say that you've done any miracles, and I certainly can't say that you necessarily live saintly. But what I am saying is that from a biblical standpoint, that's what it means to be a saint. It is to be a Christian. It means that you have been set aside, set apart for what? A holy purpose. And that's how we started this lesson today. With what? Realizing that we have been set aside for a purpose. Take the gospel across Fifth Avenue. That's what Paul is saying to the people of Ephesus. They are saints. They have been set aside for a purpose. They are saints and they are faithful. And I'm going to end on this. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, it does mean to be full of faith. Faith contains three elements. Oftentimes when we think of faith, we think of faith being simply um, hope against hope. It's holding on to something because you can't bear the thought of it not being true. It's credulity. That's not the biblical notion of faith. Faith, the Greek word is pistis. It means trust. It means relying on, counting on. And there are three elements to biblical faith. The first is an intellectual element. You understand, you comprehend the basics of the Christian faith. In order to be a person of faith, you need to understand the content of the faith. What's the mystery of faith? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's part of the intellectual content of faith. You can't be a Christian unless you understand what? That Christ has died in our place for our sins, that Christ was risen, that he rose for our justification, and that Christ will come again. Now, if you understand that, that's part of the content of the Christian faith, without which you can't have faith. But there's not just an intellectual content. There's an emotional element. Once you hear that message, once you understand that Jesus Christ came, and he came to die, but not just die for the sins of the whole world, but to die for your sins personally, then you begin to experience what John Wesley called that strange warming of the heart. Have you ever had that strange warming of the heart? Where you understand that Jesus Christ didn't just die, but he died for you. And once you experience that emotional element, then all of a sudden you realize that there's an implication for your life. And there is a volitional element. You do what? You get up and you follow him. That's how Charles Wesley described his conversion in that great hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. There's the emotional. I rose, went forth, and I followed thee. Are you following Jesus Christ today? Because there's a volitional element, you see. He is Savior, but he's also Lord. The most powerful picture of this anywhere in Scripture, in my opinion, is of doubting Thomas. Unless I can take my hand and put it in the side, unless I can take my fingers and put it in the nail prints, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared to him and he said, come, look at my wounds. And we're told that he did. I love this particular picture because it almost looks as though Jesus is taking Thomas and pushing his hand into his eye. I can imagine Thomas saying, oh, it's okay. I believe at this point. And the Lord said, oh, no, 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 Thomas, you come over here. Once he understood intellectually, then what happened? We're told he fell to his knees. 
That's the emotional response. He realized that Christ had been pierced for him. But then he said something else once he fell to his knees. And here's the volitional. My Lord and my God. You ever done that? That's what it means to be a faithful person. And if you're a faithful person, you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, then you are a saint. And if you're a saint, then this epistle is for you. To give you the strength, the courage, the wherewithal necessary to live as a people set apart. A people who take the gospel across Fifth Avenue. And that's what we're going to do in the next several weeks. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's great epistle. We thank you, Lord, that it is a word for us today, written 2,000 years ago, but applicable to us living at the dawn of the 21st century. Grant us the grace to read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, that we who are called, set apart to be saints, might live like saints. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Sorry I kept you. <laughs>